everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hi, everybody. Wayne Dorband, live from Berthoud, Colorado again. I've got Jerry Pelliquin with me here. Depending on how your screen's set up, he could either be below me or above me or somewhere on the screen. And we're excited to have him with us tonight. We are, we are in a transition now between our series that we just completed on profitable chicken farming or poultry. And we're going to probably have this week and next week, we're going to talk to a fellow named Graham Reese who is a really good friend of mine from Australia. And Graham is a livestock farmer extraordinaire. And he might become our overall host of this entire Tuesday segment, which is on broadly on animals, livestock. And if not, I'll, he's a real great speaker. You'll love Australian, his accent and everything. And he's a just a, a funny, witty guy, as is Jerry. And if, if he doesn't become a longer-term host, he'll probably at least teach a five, six, seven-week sec, sec segment on cattle and, and, and probably have a little bit of an Australian bent to what he'll talk about. But he's taught natural grazing all over the world. Um, he comes to the U.S. on a regular basis and does workshops. And so he'll probably, he's not totally... How about eat free? I, I love that, actually, Ray. Um, and that, that, that's, that's a great, great idea. So, again, but it, you won't have to worry. You guys are going to be in the elite group, and maybe that's what we'll call it. So, um, without further ado, I'm not going to talk a whole lot more about eat tonight, except I do need to say this. Our weekend event was awesome. I talked about it last night, so if you go back and listen to that replay, which isn't posted yet, I'll get it on later tonight. Um, Jerry mentioned this already, but I came home after the um, after the webinar last night and I watched the uh, debate, and so I uh, um, I got a little bit engrossed there, and so I didn't get it I didn't get it uploaded yet, but I will tonight. But anyway, I talk about our event that we had over the weekend, which was awesome, and there were about 30 to 40 I don't know the exact number I'm going to guess in between that eaters that were there, and most of them didn't know each other. Um, we were able to introduce them to each other. I know of at least three different collaborative business ventures that are coming out of those introductions. And one of them involves a, a group here in Colorado that's involved in, in the cannabis area and another group that's, that's producing a, a, a supplement that will be used potentially for cannabis and for other things, and that one is, I've, I've had four or five emails today just about what those folks are doing. That's our goal. This teaching, these sessions are great, but the biggest thing we want to have happen is have all of you interact with each other and become um, collaborators, teammates in a true sense. So that happened. And then the other thing that's really cool, we were at, I think I told you last week we just barely, we had just reached the 1500 level. I don't remember whether that was Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, obviously, we have four of these a week. 
and we're going to start having more next week. One, one of those days, we hit 1,500. I just looked, we're at 2,500. We just hit 2,500. We had 1,000 people. Now, that happened for a couple of reasons. A couple of our team members talked about this to their lists, and they have some pretty good lists. And we put a press release out that got a lot of play. I've had multiple connections today. I, I saw you on this press release. Uh, I saw you on the Boise Statesman. I saw you in the Boston Globe. I saw you wherever. And so that was also really great for us. We didn't actually advertise or market Eat there. They would have had to found it separately. But we're at 2,500 members now. And that's why you know we're not hesitating on taking this to the paid level. I might be wrong, and maybe nobody will want to pay. Everybody just wants to get something free. I hope you guys realize, I think you do, we do a lot of work for this. and Our staff, these amazing people, Stephanie, Deb, Mark, others that help, and those are the ones primarily that help us every time. Mark has never missed one of these. Stephanie has hardly ever missed. These folks do lots of work, and we haven't there's been no income from it, and that's been the goal to this point, but a little bit like Facebook, others, and we're not that size, but we're going to start monetizing now, and it isn't going to come from you. You, know, you guys were the early birds, and we appreciate that. So with all, without further ado, I'm going to introduce my friend, Jerry Pelliquin. Jerry and I have known each other. I, I, I remember exactly when we talked the first time, and I won't ever forget it, Jerry. It'll be two years in February early February when I was in San Diego at what was called Permaculture Voices 2 and our first conversation I was walking pulling my bag from the San Diego across a pretty big street not a, not a short walk it's probably about three-quarters of a mile over to the I think it was a Hilton that was right across from the airport to this conference and that was our first conversation we hit it off from that first conversation we have met together in Washington. We've worked on a number of different things together. There isn't a more interesting guy, I don't think, on the planet than Jerry in terms of his, his acumen, his stories, other things. I say on this top first slide, a legend, and I, he's embarrassed by this. I'm going to mention it. You guys can ask him other questions if you'd like. I don't know what he's going to say. But I don't remember whether I found this out as I researched him before. He didn't really even tell me. but. This guy was the original drummer for Jefferson Airplane. Okay, that's cool. Here's what's better. I have sat in a restaurant with him, and we're, we're and it's at a, a bigger table situation where we're chatting, and seeing him begin to, I'm, and I, I'm just, I'm not at all, you know, creating a beat with his feet and with his hands to where I was mesmerized. Other people stopped talking around and listened to him create a tune um, with his hands and feet, which is pretty darn cool. So um, I'm going to stop with that. I'm gonna, we're going to just have a little interview session first. I'm going to talk with him just as my friend, and then I'm going to turn it over to him and let him give a little presentation. So hey, man, how you doing? Hey, I'm great. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the buildup. <laughs> um, tell everybody where you're at. Well, I'm located, as I said before, in the true heart of darkness, Washington, D.C. The source, yeah. the locus of all evil. Yes. And you've been in the D.C. area about how long? Tell us, give us a little, just a geographic thread through your life. And, sure, and... sure. Well, you know, uh, I went to the University of Chicago. I um, 
got got out of there in the early seventies. Came came back east. I was from originally from Boston. Um, uh, worked for Sylvan Learning Systems as a director of uh, human performance uh, technology. I worked for USAID. I worked for Ford Motor Company. You know, I, I worked as a consultant uh, a lot of that time, but. I ended up down here in Washington working for USAID and, and the Mohammed Yunus organization the uh, in microfinance. And it's really where I got my interest in, in small enterprise and actually in farming in general and in aquaponics in particular uh, as, as the need for community economic development and the, and the prospect of massive global climate change began to converge. That's how I came, I guess, to this space, yes. And boy, you, you quickly went to that college time in the 70s. So you, and you said where you grew up in Boston. And you just have a tiny bit of a Boston uh, accent there still. So that's, that's easy to pick up. Um, and you were in the Marines, I believe, for a time? I spent, yes. I went in at 17. I joined the, the Marine Corps. I was in for six years. Um, I, uh, I, I played in the United States Marine Band here in Washington. In fact, I'm, I'm wearing my shirt. You can see my industry. Yeah, my yeah. So the alumnus, band alumnus. I played in the band. I spent my last year here in D.C. It's been a really interesting life. I, I, I worked when I got out of the Corps in 61, 62, early 62, January 62. I went to work for John McCormick, who was then the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Uh, but I went to work for him in a very menial capacity. In those days, they had patronage. I, was, I got an appointment as a Capitol policeman. Which was a federal, uh, a federal. Officer. In fact, I was here when Kennedy was assassinated. Wow. So it was, and I was also here doing, during Martin Luther King's uh, uh, speech. So it was, it was quite. I've kind of been a witness to history, actually, in many ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and went west uh, to San Francisco because of what what happens to most young men had a bad love affair. So I got, <laughs> I went to San Francisco. I thought maybe I'd become Jack Kerouac or something, but anyway, yeah. So that's kind of. A nutshell of, the, of of my life. Now, now I don't have to write the biography. You guys have it all down here. Well, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna weave another piece in here. It's just it's a question I ask of a lot of people I interview, and I think you'll enjoy it. Pretend it was a Saturday or a, a weekend day, and you were 15 years old, hmm. um, and you didn't have anything else you had to be doing, so you could pretty much just make your day your own. What would Jerry be doing? What would we have found you doing on just a well, I'd be doing one of two things. I'd either be playing baseball, which was my, my passion in, in those days, or I would be down about a mile from where I lived fishing in the ocean. <laughs> so I'll stay there. on that one for a second. What did you catch in the ocean about that well, time? What, what depends it? upon the time of the year. Um, uh, if it was at night and any times, it would be, be hake during the day. It might you get flounder, you get and depending upon when when what part of the year was maybe mackerel, um, but or, or pollock uh, would depend. But but Boston is a pretty northern city. I mean it's not really far north, but it's fairly north. And uh, with this was Boston Harbor, which is probably three or four miles from the ocean, but you can see the ocean from from Boston Harbor. Um, and and, that, and that's where that's where I would I would go fishing and uh, yeah. Do you, have any, do you have any memorable? Do you have any memorable fishing story? You know, we all have fish stories. I, I do. I do. At that time, my my friend and I and his father used to go fishing all the time at night, and especially in the summertime when the the hake would be running in. 
and when they were running, there was they were like you could almost walk on the water. I mean, there were that many of them, and and you could just you could catch them as fast as you could throw a line in the water. And uh, we we would make fish chowder out of them. And I, one night I remember I caught a hundred of them. A hundred. I had a. a, a I was almost almost like being a commercial fisherman. I had a big basket full of fish. Um, yeah. So I mean that was. Cool. That was one of my one of my sound uh, experiences. The other one was I, I played on the first. There were four when Little League first started. There were four teams in Boston, and I played on one of them. So that was another big wow. thing in my um, Yeah. How about when did you start doing something musically? And, and was it drumming initially? Or, I, or? No, I play, actually, as I was telling someone earlier today, I actually played a trumpet. Um, I uh, that's where I grew up. I you know everybody gets. Not everybody, but most people in high school are exposed to music in some ways. That you know, and I no, not anymore, Jerry. With the oh, that's right, not anymore. That's correct. That's it was then, certainly. Yeah. So I played a trumpet, and when I went in, actually when I went into the when I went into the military, I, I was I was playing a trumpet, but I was in the Black Hawk Cat Bar in Yokohama, and this guy said, "Shut up!" And I thought he said, "Stand up!" And the next thing I knew, I had two front teeth missing, so I had to learn to do something else. Or, or I was going to go to Vietnam, so I, <laughs> I learned to, I learned to play drums. Uh, I, I just had great teachers. I had people who lived there. You know, they, they taught me until I, they kept me from getting up until I learned. Are you one of these guys? Are you a, a, drumming may not be the same, but trumpet could be play by ear. I mean, once you sort of learned the dynamics of the trumpet, or, or was yeah, it something? I, I was always, I always had a lot of rhythm. So I swing. I really liked swing, and I could, I. I mean, I didn't have. Uh, by the time I got into, by the time I got into my last year of high school, my armature was pretty good, and I could, I could play fairly well. But, but I wasn't a, 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 I was never a professional class musician on trumpet. But I quickly became professional class musician in drums. Um, it, it was just, it was an innate talent, and I was just lucky. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And was, did somebody in the Marines encourage that? I mean, the bar, yeah, obviously, the incident. I was in a band, and, and there were drummers in the band, and they, and they just took shifts working with me. Eight hours every day, eight hours they'd work with me, and I practiced eight hours a day for like three months before I, I qualified. But, you know, you, it, it's, all, it's all practice. It's all how you practice. You practice right, properly, you practice assiduously. Yeah, you, you can learn anything if you 10,000 hours, you know. Yeah, yeah. So let's take us forward till today, and yeah. same thing. It's a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. I actually think I might know the answer to this one. Um, and you don't have other obligations. You can do what you want to be doing. What will we find you doing? Probably find me right here. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of I have a lot of interests um, around. Around, around the the the, issue, the two issues, the twin issues in, that are important to me in my life, and one is social and economic justice, and the other one is is uh, food equity or food policy. And I am um, I'm fairly active in those communities on LinkedIn and and in uh, and uh, in in and around the the eastern and the cities actually mainly cities. I have many correspondents in the cities throughout the country. So I'm well. I'm, I actually thought you were going to answer that differently because you told me, and I know this, you. I don't know that it's every Sunday, but if the weather's decent, and I, I sat oh, yeah. a week. You play. You go and yeah. play, um, and, and play the drums with. Yeah, with a, actually, yes. And you know, um, you, you you know that about about two months, two and a half months ago, I had a hip replaced. Yes. And um, uh, while I was in the hospital, it turns out that my physician in the hospital was a, was a piano player. And and they have a doctor's band there, 
and they said, well, they found out I was a musician. They said, would you like to play with us? So the day before I got discharged, I played a concert downstairs in the, in the atrium with the Docs band, about an eight or nine piece band. Um, and then I went back on the fifth again uh, and played again. And now I'm going to use them as part of a fundraiser. Uh, we're all going to play together one more time at least. So, and they've invited me to join. But I'll be the only one who's not a doctor in that band. Uh, Very cool. I'm going to just quick aside. The pictures that are on the screen right now, one of the one on the left, everybody, because a lot of you are aware of it. That's actually from Mountain Sky Ranch, where we had the event over the weekend. That's not what it looks like inside that building right now. That was probably five years ago, six years ago, maybe, when that entire greenhouse building was filled with aquaponic systems. And that building's 36 by 30. Pretty good size, almost a thousand square feet. And we kept what you're seeing here, that's only part of one wall. So picture the same thing going on on the other wall. Um, and that's west facing. So south is towards me and you know, you're looking south to north in the picture. And we kept that running year round because we heated it with a wood stove, a two barreled wood stove that we made out of 55 gallon drums. And we put a kit that we bought for $35, I remember it where we put a door on the front of each of those. We would stoke the bottom one with wood. We, bur we burned pine. This was not real high quality wood. And the reason for the two stages is that second stage would burn everything. In other words, we were getting really high efficiency. We were also getting creosote because <laughs> the air leaving it was cold and it would go up into a one straight run and then out to actually towards the back here of this greenhouse in the away from the way the, pic, the way the picture's looking, one little like three foot run and then up again outside. So it really wasn't much of a run, but we had some creosote issues. We kept that heated year round, so through the winter, with a little over two cords of wood. Wow. And everybody said, oh, no way you could do it. We kept, so when I say heated, we kept it in kind of green's realm, which was 45, 50 degrees at night. We didn't keep it in the 70s by any means. You're seeing tomatoes at one end of it, and those are all kinds of greens and other things throughout. And then the big thing was that excess heat coming off of the, the, the uh, chimney even, we piped that into a raft-based aquaponic system outside that had a hoop house over the top of it. We also ran that year-round, and we insulated the tank that the fish were in. That system is still there at the ranch. This is gone now because this is now our alpaca baby, it's our nursery area, so our moms and babies live in this because we've got too many of them. I'm sorry, just a little diversion there. Back to a, a quick question about uh, more more of the current time. Sure. Um, what, what's a book you've read and you've recently read that you just in, really enjoyed that would be applicable that our audience would show you, but also something they might enjoy? Well, it's a book that I, that I, I, I have. It's in my library, and I, I read it. I read it periodically. It's a book that was written by my by my teacher, a guy named Thomas Gilbert. It's called Human Competence, and it talks about what what is what's necessary in order to get good performance out of people. How to how to make make sure that people are not coerced, and so that and so that that what you the way you structure the workplace is provides incentive for the worker to perform, or for the person to perform, and that's yourself and and everybody else. 
It was published by McGraw-Hill in, I think, 1975, but it's still available. It's very much available under, uh, under uh, HR Press. Uh, and yeah, so that's, that's, that's one, of my, one of my favorite books of all times. I have another one um, uh, by, uh, by Gary Rumler and, 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 and Thomas Brach on the same subject. So it's, it's my, my discipline is organizational psychology, and so uh, that was another point I wanted to make. I, don't confuse me with a farmer. I play one on television. Uh, I'm not, a, I'm not, you know, I, 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 I've made myself over the, last, over the last five years an expert in aquaponics only by, by study and by learning. It's not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy who runs the, 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 the car plant. I don't build the cars. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so, and I think that's important for people to know because people may have legitimate disagreements with what I have to say. Well, so we we'll need see. we need people like that, and, and that's why you and I get. I think why we've connected and, and felt good together because I'm the op, I am the doer, and I'm, I, I I think we have similar sort of vision, but I don't I don't have the the project management, all of the your teaching skills. You're, uh, you're amazing. Anyway, we'll talk more about that. Um, let's go to a, a, a little different level. How do you? Sure. How do you? What would you define the word sustainability? Your your definition. It's one of those words that is defined so many different ways. You know, I, I have a very simple definition for sustainability, and and it's basically the triple bottom line. And that is economically viable. It has to work economically. If it doesn't, if it isn't economically sustainable, it can't be sustainable any other way because it won't exist. So so so, economic viability. Two, environmental soundness. It has to be concentric, and it has to be compatible with the the the, the, pre, pre, the preservation and the, and the sustainability of the environment. If it isn't, then then it's not sustainable. So economically, environmentally, and finally, it has to be socially just. It has to be something that makes sense for people. It doesn't damage anybody's life or anybody's livelihood. That in, that empowers people. So the triple bottom line is economic viability environmental soundness and social responsibility that's those are my definition that's my clear definition of what sustainable very good so I have two more questions and then we're going to go to you just giving us a, a nice little presentation um, sure. this one this one I, I think you'll both of these you'll enjoy this the first one's a little bit tough for some but they, usually once they answer it they enjoy it think of something that happened in your life let's let's think in maybe in a business context Right, but it could be personal. But let's let's make it business. That was really negative when it happened, and and now as you look back at it, you realize that that negativity turned into something that was really positive. And give us just a a glimpse of what that was. You know, asking for the real sure. personal. <laughs> um, in 19, no, 2006. My partners and I had been working for the Grameen Foundation, <clears throat> Dr. Muhammad Yunus's organization in Bangladesh, but we were working back here and traveling around, t training uh, micro bankers in business process management. And we realized that the problem was that we were creating, bringing people out of poverty, but we were teaching them be, to be operators of push carts, and that's good, but not everybody can run a push cart. You need to have medium-sized businesses, and you need to be able to grow to make an economy. And so we formed, uh, we, we spent a year developing an organization called MicroVenture Support. I'll get to the end, to the bottom line here. We convinced Morgan Stanley, which, what, which is an investment bank, banking, they're still in business. Uh, they had a unit in England, actually, then they were forming what they called a social stock exchange. 
that were going to fund businesses that produced both profit and 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 socially responsible business. And um, we wrote a business plan. They accepted it. Uh, the, the first tranche was to be two and a half million dollars. We were going to build these units in Africa and in India. Um, my partner and I got on a plane on I think it was September two thousand six to go up. We went to England. We flew in to Heathrow, spent the night in London, went over there in the morning, and their offices had been locked up and closed, and everyone fired. It was the beginning of the financial crisis. Wow. There was, I had spent $150,000 of my own money, and I was in England on one half of a first-class ticket with no sense of how in God's name I was going to recoup that investment that I lost. Huh. So that was, that was the negative side of it. Uh, when we came back to the United States and we started thinking about what had happened, we realized that, in fact, the truth really was that there were more people in the inner cities in the United States that had more in common with the people in Bamako and Mali than they did with the people where I lived in Washington, D.C. There were so many poor, truly poor people in, in America, people who didn't have access to fresh food, who didn't have, access, didn't have a decent livelihood. And we decided, looking at the climate, the, the convergence of the climate crisis, which was then only beginning to loom in many people's minds, that, that, uh, a, that a business that grew food in the inner cities, that grew both protein and carbohydrate, that produced, that produced uh, food security, was, was good business. Now, uh, that was five years ago. I, I still can't prove that that's true. <laughs> but I thoroughly believe that it is. Um, and anyway, it, it changed my the trajectory of my life, and uh, and I it's it's been it's been a challenge and a, and, a, and a joy really to me ever since. That's great, and I I didn't, I didn't you hadn't told me that's that front end of that story, so that's great. So now my last question, then I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you let you go. And by the way, thank you, Stephanie. Um, we're going to talk because I'm going to start having you do little slide presentations like this behind me when I'm doing my my talks and maybe some of our other speakers because this is very cool. Um, let's pretend that you woke up this morning and you were not in on you were not on Earth, <laughs> and you figured that out by one morning that will be true. <laughs> you figured out that out by getting out and talking to some people and, and saying what's going on and it's not Earth, but it's very much like it. Everything else is somewhat similar. Um, you're around some really nice people. Um, you've got all of your daily needs met, all right? But you've got, you figured out you got the equivalent of $500 in their currency, in, and, and you got your laptop. That's all you have. What are you going to do for the next seven days with that $500 in your laptop? Well, I'm going to find the best restaurant in town, have a good meal. Um, well, I think that uh, for the next seven days, I think what I would do is I would, um, I, I, I hate to admit this, but I'm an inveterate video gamer. I don't play because I know that if I start, I'll never stop. Um, <laughs> I'd find myself a, a decent hotel room, get myself, uh, load, load, load up a couple of really hot video games and just play my ass off. Uh, <laughs> I think that's probably what I would do. All right. Well, I mean, that's not, not, very, not very philosophically interesting, but the truth. It works. It's real. Um, so that's a great transition into um, a little presentation that Jerry's put together for us. And Stephanie, if you want to cue that up, um, then we'll we'll. Switch well, wait, let me let me let me comment just a little bit on what on what 
Stephanie's been showing here. Uh, yes, I'll, please, please do. Yeah, and it, it goes to it goes to the the, the cent, center of my philosophy about aquaponics, and uh, you and I know we've had this discussion many times, and that is that aquaponics, as it is presently, as it, it is presently practiced, is is in my opinion not a viable commercial business. Um, and the reason the reasons for it are manifest. Um, most people don't understand. Most people can grow something. They can understand growing something, and they even understand growing something in a greenhouse. But when you add fish to the mix, you create a level of complexity that most people don't grasp. And the truth of the matter is that since the I posted on my Facebook page, just posted on Facebook that the fish are the Achilles heel of the aquaponic system. If if you lose the fish, which which can happen quite easily because they're very small animals. And as you know, Wayne, they get, can get sick very quickly, and it goes through them like wildfire. You lose the fish, you lose the vegetables, because you don't have any other means to fertilize them. And when you lose the vegetables, you lose your customers. And they don't come back, because it's going to take you five to six months to build the biomass back up. So you, there, are, there are hundreds and hundreds of small, well-intentioned aquaponics farms around the country that start up, they last maybe two years, and then they fail. And it's almost always the same story. They lost a fish. And once you lose the fish, you're out of business, basically. So what my mission is, is to make aquaponics a commercially viable business. Because I believe that it needs to be. We can't continue to go along the path that we're going. Hydroponics is certainly a, an alternative. But basically, hydroponics doesn't produce B12. It produces vegetables. And when you produce fish, now you have protein. Now you have a complete nutritional package. And if you have, once the supermarkets are out of food, there's no food left. Most cities have about five days supply of food. After that, it's chaos. It almost happened in New Jersey at the last, at the last flood. But <clears throat> you need to have, there needs to be food sustainability, food security, and that's what aquaponics can do for you. Now that's that. That was my that was my my preps. And what I was showing you earlier, what you were seeing when you were looking at those screens, is the contrast between what I call sustenance or subsistence aquaponics and commercial aquaponics. Uh, you know, there uh, subsistence aquaponics, uh, sustenance aquaponics. When you grow something to feed yourself, you're feeding yourself, your family, and your friends. And, and that, was that was the system in the greenhouse that, that I showed. Yeah, so that was yeah. clear. That's just, that's sustenance. You, you're providing food for yourself. Subsistence is when you've really essentially bought yourself a job. What you do is you're growing food and you're selling at the farmers markets and the local restaurants, but you're not you're just making enough money to pay yourself. There's no profit in it. People call that they're making money by paying themselves a profit. That's not profit, that's a salary. Okay? And and so and that's very difficult when people say, Well, I'll scale up. Not true. Scaling in aquaponics is not the same as in any other business because you can't scale a small aquaponics system into a large one. Let me give you an reason why. If I say to you I want a dozen cookies and I send you out into the kitchen, you'll go out and get your mix and everything and your pots and your eggs and whatever and you mix up a dozen cookies and cook them, they'll be beautiful. If I say make me 5,000 dozen cookies, it's a whole different game. It's a different set of equipment. It's a different recipe even. And that's where <clears throat> The, the break between sustenance and subsistence aquaponics and commercial aquaponics, in my vision, happens. You, 
the, the problem with making money in aquaponics is you have to be at commercial scale. If you can't sell to the large retailers in your community, if you can't sell to them, then you're probably not going to be successful. I just bought a one-third interest in a failing uh, urban farm in Baltimore, and that was exactly their problem. They had enough money. They got in business. They sold to the farmer's markets. They, sold, they, did, they stayed in business for two and a half, three years, mainly on grants. They ran out of the grants, and the business failed because they didn't have sufficient capital to pay their overhead and keep their business going. Um, I, I don't mean to be pa painting a bleak picture, but I'm painting a picture that I have participated in the, the construction of over the last three or four years. Um, we've decided that we're not going to go into the business unless we are adequately capitalized and we have sufficient capital expense, capital capex, to be able to acquire the equipment necessary in order to grow 5,000, to build bake 5,000 cookies. <laughs> yeah. So, so having said that, what I have what I have up here on the screen, or I believe I have on the screen, is a generic presentation that we presented that talks about the Family Fish Farm Network and our vision. And I, I, how much time do I have, Wayne? Here, I don't want to. Uh, ha, um, easily a half. Let's say twenty-five minutes. So. Okay, twenty-five minutes. I want to set my timer so I don't violate the norms of the of the group here. By the uh, way, anybody, if you'd like, if, if she's going along, you've got questions, put them in. We'll answer them at the end. But throw your questions into the, uh, the question box. Okay, so thirty minutes. Okay, thirty minutes. Okay, we got to set it to thirty. All right. So um, what you're looking at here is a uh, is a um, a presentation that we put together that that tells people who we are, what we do. So you can see mission statement: Who are we? Problems that we solve. What an engineered aquaponic system looks like. What our plant product line is. Our marketing strategy. The product mix. Project milestones. And in this particular case, we're talking to investors here in Washington D.C. So this talks about. Washington, D.C. Next slide, please. So uh, here we have, you know, the, the, the terms that we use in our, in our description of, of, of what we do. We talked about the triple bottom line. Corporate social responsibility. What is good corporate citizenship? What should a corporation be, be doing in order to be? And many today, when I first wrote this, it was pretty new. Today, many companies look at their corporate citizenship and even have an officer in the company that's responsible for that. So, so there's a lot of people who are looking at this now. The next term is anchor institutions. These are people that you, can, you should be able to look to to support your efforts. Anchor institutions are, as it says, they're big, it's what's called civil society, a part of civil society. It's large organizations, insurance companies, universities have enormous endowments that they, that they don't use profitably, usually. People like Johns Hopkins, who are, in my view, caused many of the problems that we have in Baltimore by its predatory real estate practices. Uh, these these institutions need to try for them to engage in the community and start helping to solve some of these problems. And then, of course, government and 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 uh, trade unions, non, non non NGOs. Next slide. So those are some of the terms we use, and what we're calling the Green Alliance, which are people who are working to to uh, advance, uh, advance social, social and economic causes. So who, here's what I see our company being. We're a disruptive technology. I think many people who've been in business know what that means. It means it changes the way things are done. Right now, 
food is grown in California, shipped to the United, shipped to the West Coast, five five days between uh, harvest and, and even the store. So who knows how long it might really be? Um, baking in the sun, going across the Mexican border, losing nutrition, all of those issues. So the idea is to grow food locally, grow here, eat here. All right. A gazelle, in, in venture capital terms, and believe me, I know more about venture capital, capitalist companies than I ever wanted to know, um, uh, a gazelle is, is, a, is a, a company that can grow quickly. And the idea is to plan that growth and plan that employment strategy, which we, which we have done. Then, you know, there's the value chain. In the value chain, we take one full step. It's called a disintermediation of the value chain. We take one full step out of the value chain. So we become producer providers rather than simply producers, distributors, and then retailers. So the idea, of course, is to cut the time also to, from, from, from harvest to market. In other words, the faster the food gets to the consumer, the fresher it is, the more nutritious it is. Um, and then the business model. That's another thing that many people who go into, they forget that farming is a business. And, and, and it's a business, and you have to, in a business, you have to have marketing. Marketing isn't sales. Marketing is part of sales. Marketing is place, price, place, price, place, price, place, product, and promotion. It's the things that you've got to do in order to make sure that people are aware of your product in the marketplace and that they're willing. It's branding. It, that's another thing. You know, we try to, we, we sell our product, which is infinitely superior to the stuff that's being grown in, 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 in different parts of the country. And it's local and it's fresh, and we and we end up in competition with people who are growing with slave labor in Mexico, basically. You know that that should be known. People need to know, and that's part of branding. If you let people know why they should buy your product, they will pay more for it. Now, some people can't, and that's another story. Next slide, Jerry. Before you go yeah. on, I want sure. you because you said it really fast. Define branding or marketing again. Price. Keep going. Price. What, is it, what are you selling your product for? Place. Where are you selling your product? Product. What is your product? And how do you promote that product so that people know about it? So four P's. The four P's. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Spent two days in a public library in New York learning that. Um, so this is our mission, generally generally uh, stated. It's, it's still operable. Um, I, I wrote this probably two years ago. And uh, it, it could easily be updated, uh, uh, but but it's it's still the thought that went into this is what you're going to be seeing. It you haven't seen a full business plan, but this is a business plan is like having a baby nine months. And uh, it took me I, I won version seven of the plan, so it, it's the, it's what it takes. Next slide. Smart solutions for hard problems. Okay, so we grow fish and vegetables locally. Eliminate farm-based solution, a uh, pollution. I mean, what happens in the springtime is the farmers. I'm, I'm talking about normal commercial farmers. Springtime comes, they bring trucks out and they dump tons of, of, of uh, nitrate uh, fertilizer on their on their land. Then along come the spring rains and wash it all down into the streams, into the rivers, into the bays, cause algae blooms, kill fish. It's it's a it's it's a problem. It's not as much a problem as municipal sewage plants, but it is a problem. Um, so uh, aquaponics eliminates that because we don't buy commercial nitrate fertilizer. It comes from the fish. Uh, that is, if the fish are alive, it comes from the fish. Um, we also save massive amounts of clean water. 
Uh, aquaponics is a recirculating technology. So is hydroponics. But <clears throat> aquaponics is more efficient from a filtering point of view. It's more efficient than the tradition. And, and many hydroponics farms do not adequately filter their water, so they have salt-laden discharge that, that uh, ends up being a pollutant that needs to be dealt with. And it, it either costs them money to dispose of it, or they end up polluting and hiding it. Um, so we, we reduce the carbon footprint because we reduce the transportation requirements to ship food all across the country. All those trucks you see on Route 80 and others heading east and west, those are all trucks loaded with, must, many of them are loaded with food and food parts. You know, sending them to the east coast, going from the, to the population centers on the eastern side of the United States. So we also promote community economic development. Our plan is to, is to build not just in, 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 in the rural areas, but to build in the inner cities because we can grow in the city. We can grow and we can retrofit into existing buildings. There's all kinds of ways to do it. I haven't talked about the technology for doing it yet, but I will get to that. Um, so it promotes community economic development because you hire people from the inner cities. What we're talking about is not stealing jobs from another industry, but creating a new industry, urban, Farming is a new industry. Food farming in, in the city is food production. Now I know there are people who think who believe in, this, in in what I call the religion of the soil or religion of dirt. It isn't grown in dirt. It's unholy. It's ungodly. But you, and there may be elements uh, of truth to the fact that there are trace materials in, in in soil that you can't get. But there's also bad shit in soils that you do get too. So the question is, how do you get the best the best trade off there? So in, as part of the community economic development, there's quality jobs with a future. Most of these jobs that these jobs programs start are dead-end jobs. People know they're dead-end jobs. You can't support a family on it. And you have to be on welfare and lie and try to get Medicaid. And I know because I came up, I was born in that kind of an environment. It's a hustle that people, poor people are engaged in every day to try to beat the system so they can actually have a life. Um, it, it ain't fair. Next. It ain't Christian. Um, so again, uh, click again, Stephanie. Uh, I forget what's on that screen. I know there's other stuff on that screen, isn't there? Yeah. Okay. There you go. So, aquaponics food production is a is a closed loop system. Okay, it's intensive aquaculture and recirculating hydroponics. It's a combination of the two. When done well, it's a perfect storm of food production. This is a small system that we, we talked about uh, growing. Our model is what we call a hub, uh, hub and spoke. So a hub is 45,000 square feet. A spoke is smaller, but it's, but it's, it, it, and it's monoculture. One of the things that we learned is you don't want to grow different kinds of vegetables in the same environment. If you're going to do this, you want to isolate them because you want to control. You want to do what's called controlled environment agriculture. You want to control all of the variables in the environment, light, uh, humidity, uh, uh, pressure, uh, all of those things that you want to control as much as you can and keep the, uh, the environment absolutely clean. You grow in a semi-clean room environment. Uh, okay, so, and, and, and then the other thing, of course, is the fish. And when you feed the fish, one of the arguments and one of the, you'll see on the internet is that, that farmed fish are not healthy. Well, there's nothing that one man can do that another man can't do with a little less integrity. And if you grow properly, if you grow using non-animal-based uh, protein, if you grow the fish uh, without adding uh, 
um, antibi antibiotics to the fish as, to the water as a normal course. If you grow them carefully and you grow them organically, I, I don't know if I should use that word because they made it, they bastardized it, but you'll get naturally. Natural. Use naturally. Natural food. You'll get naturally grown, you'll get natural, natural food that will be uncontaminated and it will meet any standards that people want to put on you. Um, okay, next slide. Oops, back one. Yeah, okay, so this is a block diagram of what a very simple functional diagram from a functional level. It's not a technical diagram, but it, it shows that there are two subsystems. On the left, you have the aquaculture subsystem, and on the right, you have the hydroponic subsystem. And in between, you have a series of pumps and filters. And so what you are is you have a closed-loop system that water keeps going around and around. You do lose maybe 2 to 5% of the water periodically from cleaning the filters, from take uptake from the vegetables. So you do lose some of the water. But compared to normal traditional farming, it's far more efficient when it works. <laughs> okay, next slide. Um, these uh, these were the, these are some of the products that have been grown uh, aquaponically. Um, the left of the, on the left side of the vegetables, um, see where, I, where it says pharmaceutical plants. Read cannabis, and there are many others, of course. Um, uh, and in the fish, uh, we have we could, we could grow bivalves and crustaceans. Uh, it requires a different environment, of course, a bit more sophisticated. Um, but and the most common fish that we grow aquaponically is tilapia because it's so fault tolerant. It has the widest range, temperature range that it'll live in. It doesn't mind living in murky water. It, it's, a, it, it's not a, it's not a, um, uh, a cannibal. It doesn't eat, its, it won't eat, eat itself or eat others. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good fish. But there are others you can grow. I mean, you can grow, I know that uh, domestically there are lots of different kinds of fish being grown, including cobia and, and uh, here on the east coast of the United States, shellfish. Oysters are a big, big thing. We've had major problems there. Uh, anyway, you can do, all of these things are possible to grow. The question is, do you have the technology to be able to do it? Which is another issue about, about running it as a business. You need to have people who, if you don't understand, you better have people who do. Next. Okay, so this is the, basically the, the, the truth of the matter is that supply at present the pent-up demand for locally grown natural food is much larger than the existing supply. If I had 100,000 pounds of, of locally grown lettuce, I could sell them tomorrow. But it doesn't exist. The, the, the existing urban farms are too small. They're not producing enough, enough product. They, they, it's sporadically available. They don't schedule their crop rotations properly. They're not good farmers. And so they end up with big holes, and then people buy from the people that they can depend upon, and that's the big growers on the, on, the, on your side of the country. Um, I'm going to okay. stop, Jerry, for just a second, because I really sure. want all of you to get this. Um, I get from 5 to 20 inquiries a day from people who want to start doing some kind of fish farming, fish, shrimp, I'll call it aquaculture. Sure. And those that I end up having intelligent conversations with, some of them, quite frankly, just don't have any idea. Don't they want to do something for free and they want everybody else to work for them? I won't call those realistic. But let's say those that are realistic, people that 
really seem like they could be good business people. The amazing thing is that they first ask, it's almost always their first question, is there a market? And when we finish, the first thing they want to go out and research. I had, I had two guys yesterday who said, I'm going to start making phone calls. This, is, this was for shrimp. I'm going to start right. making phone calls to chefs and to restaurants and find out if they'll buy my shrimp. And I said, you know, that's, if you really just need to satisfy yourself that that's true, do it. But the reality is that's the last thing you should be doing. You better find some money first because you don't have any. Well, what but, they want to do is they want to make sure that they have money so they can convince an investor to put up the money. Yeah, but, but the point is the market, this, is, this, is the, this isn't true for a lot of other kinds of, of commodity-based agriculture. But right. It absolutely is for local, naturally produced food. There is absolutely. way more demand than there is supply. There's, a, there's an organization in Boston called the CARP, I think it's the, 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 re, the market researchers, and they did a study a few years ago in Louisville, Kentucky, of all places. They found a $300 million annual pent-up demand for local food that wasn't being met. So, yeah. I, I, you know, uh, the problem with my, with my company that I'm trying to buy in Baltimore is not that they, that they, 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 can't, that they can't find the market. They just can't grow enough. They can't. And they can't grow enough to feed themselves because they don't understand that the margin on food is small. A head of lettuce, you got to sell. You can't grow ten thousand heads of lettuce a, a month. You got to grow ten thousand heads of lettuce a week at least. So anyway, um, and, and you can't do that. This is the this is the subject of one of the webinars that I run on my site, which I you know maybe we'll do we'll do one for you guys later. Uh, I have four of them on, on the subject. So marketing just. We're a distributive. We're a distributive model. In other words, we're we're looking at national distribution on a local basis. What do I mean by that? If you're in Hamtramck, Michigan, and you want ten thousand heads of lettuce, and you are a Whole Foods uh, 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 store there, I want to deliver that ten thousand heads of lettuce to you from my Hamtramck facility, not from my New York facility or my California facility. I don't want to be sending trucks across the country. I want to grow the food where it's going to be consumed. And local food by the Department of Agriculture says uh, 150 to 200 miles is considered local food. So that's the, dis that's the distribution model, 150 to 200 miles uh, at the most. I'd rather have be 50 to 75 miles, actually. <clears throat> now, uh, so first of all, a distributive structure enables ra and enable rapid deployment. So be able to get those units out into the, into the, into the inner cities. Now, build a quality product. Access high-end markets when you're in low volume, sell to the high-end markets. As your volume goes up, you go down market. Okay. That, so that's what it says. As, the, as, you expect, as, your, as your capacity expands, and in the beginning when you're only growing a, a limited amount of food, you, you sell it to the highest bidder. You sell it to the, to the top restaurants. You sell it to the top farmers markets. That's where you go. You go to get the best buck. But when your volume increases, you can then come, come down market and go broader. Um, Next slide. Next uh, one more. Yeah. <clears throat> so the idea is to remember we talked about the anchor institutions in the community and all of these people. There, there are enormous food deserts in in, in, in cities where there there is in Baltimore, for example, you can go 50 blocks and not find anything but a liquor store. So you you've got to, there is there are no there are no places where people can go and buy fresh lettuce or kale or anything else. They're just not there. There are community gardens where people grow, but those are not going to make those are going to make it happen. 
So the idea is to partner with these anchor institutions who owe back to the city. They owe back, and many of them are beginning to realize that they do. And you get them to subsidize your operation in the beginning. So in other words, they pay a premium for what they buy. And they get in this indicia that they can put on their state that says, the Healthy Food, or the Green Alliance, the Healthy Food Alliance, we are a participating member. And that gives them PR, and you promote them, and they promote you. And I'm not saying this is easy, you just flip a coin and you do it, you've got to have someone in, in charge of it. And what does that mean? It means you've got to pay them, and how are you going to pay them? You have to have enough volume so that you can afford to pay them, because that's called overhead. So you've got to grow volume. You can't do it if you're a sustenance or a subsistence. I'm not arguing against subsistence or sustenance farming. I am absolutely all over it. I'm just saying that it's not a, that, that understand what you're doing. You're growing food for yourself or you're growing food to, to support you and your family. But if you want a business, it's a whole different game and you've got to think completely differently. All right, next slide. So uh, this is this is how we looked at we we, we present our, our our business plan to potential investors. You know this is and this is I got to tell you this is optimistic and after studying this and thinking about it, I decided I was way too optimistic when I wrote this. Uh, the, the one thing you can be sure of that you're going to have troubles no matter how good the plan is it's not going to work the way you wrote it. So you need to have people who are who are your investors need to be socially responsible investors who realize that this is really large-scale R&D. And they're willing to support it because that's their mission. And those are the people that you have to find. We're getting ready, for example, to launch a WeFunder under President uh, Obama's new workforce A-plus program where, they've, where they, they, they paused, actually they told the SEC rules. And you, the big problem in the Securities Exchange Commission has been reporting requirements and the fact that you have to be certified by every state individually. You have to Every state has to plan. He's eliminated that. The states no longer need, uh, apply. You could raise up to $20 million selling retail stock through the Internet. All you have to do is you have to notify the SEC that you're doing it. So WeFunder is the major um, uh, crowdfunding uh, organization, at the, the top one right now, that's doing that. And that's part of, of our, our re-review of our, our path forward. So, okay, m moving along. I can't talk to all of these individually, I just don't have time. So, so this is what's known as a, a milestone event chart. And you click, click again and you'll start seeing little annotations that will pop up that explain exactly when, what kinds of things. Again, go ahead, just go on, click through it. And show when, when certain events happen in the process of, of, of starting up the business. You know, we looked at 18 months, it could be, it could be longer. One of the problems with venture capitalists is what they'll do is they'll look at every one of those lines and the day you miss one of those milestones, they'll say, okay, I get to buy more stock and pretty soon the next thing you know, it's not your business anymore. You're working for them. It's their business. And they fired you, by the way, and there's a new boss in there. So this is another little explanation of how that goes. Uh, moving along, next one. And that's why, Jerry, and that's why being mature men like we are, we, we can take that firing end of it a little easier than some of the younger folks. Well, so, don't, don't make me go there. Um, so, so this is what, you know, not just jobs, right? We're talking about when people are involved in, 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 the, in the business that they work in, when employees are in fact owners of the business, you free this enormous burden from their shoulders. 
No longer are you the enemy. In traditional business, management is the enemy of labor. Why? Because it's your job to keep labor costs down. And in keeping labor costs down, you keep salaries down. So there's a constant tension between you and them. And they look at you, the worker looks at you as the enemy. And many, unfortunately, many people who are managers actually perpetuate that, that problem. The enemy is not in, can't be inside the company. As Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot long stand. The idea is to have everybody, because when the doors close, everybody stands on the outside. The idea is to get people to work together as partners, and it can be done. It doesn't mean they make the same amount of money you do. It just means they owe the same amount of the business that you do. That's different. They don't get their money until you sell it. You make 150000 a year, they make forty. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. You started the business. Uh, anyway, I, that's part of my social philosophy. You don't have to buy into that. It's, it's, it's just my strategy. And... Um, it's just something I, I thought I would share with you. Uh, next, next, click again. That's kind of the, the, the story of, uh, of the, that I tell. And uh, I'm sticking to that story no matter what you say. Whoa. And I, you, I didn't even see you look down at your timer, Jerry. That was awesome. Everybody, you just got an amazing amount of information. I hope you realize that. Would you guys throw in some ones if... Uh, if that was cool, if you enjoyed that, because and I would really say, and I'm going to go back, and I've heard this guy talk a number of times, I'm going to go back and watch this two or three times, because there was little bits and pieces there that was cool. Jerry, would you make sure, or shoot, we have it, I was going to say, we've got these slides, we'll post, if you don't mind, Jerry, we're going to No, post no, them. feel free to use them any way you want, as long as you change them, no. put your name in there, put somebody else's name in there, no, it's all right. No. Guys, Jerry's, Jerry's a member of this team, everybody. And guess what? He needs funding. We need to get this done. And, and he didn't even talk about some of the other really cool projects. We'll, we'll have him back on again to talk about things that he's doing in Ethiopia, things that he's doing in, um, in Bogota, in other, Bogota, Colombia, technology that he's working Net with. Nanobubbles. Nanobubbles, yeah. Um, anyway, there's, there's a lot more here. And... Uh, again, I, I put in some ones if you guys like this. Thank you so much. Put in some other questions, please. Um, we have a little bit of time. He just yeah, I'm glad to answer anybody. anybody sure. yeah. I believe that what blesses one blesses all. Don't be shy. Um, by the way, Ray, it was so cool. Ray's putting in some bunch of ones here. It was so cool being with Jan and Mike over the weekend. And I don't know whether she told you, but she almost won the fishing tournament. She. Uh, there's a really cool story there that I'll tell another time, but we had, we, had, we had some really neat stuff going on with our little fishing tournament that we did. Jerry, we caught 126 fish from four or five people in two hours, but, but, and a lot of them were pretty good size. More importantly, we caught 170 that we marked, that we, we, we put what we call mark and recapture on, so we clipped their fins which doesn't hurt them, by the way. There aren't any nerves there. And um, we, the next day, we went back in and <coughs> excuse me, recaptured, and we calculated what our, <coughs> our, first, our fish population is. And I had told everybody what I thought it was, and, and we were pretty darn close. So in this pond that's three acres, we had 12,000 fish that are, more than, that are more than a pound in weight. If you wow. do the protein calculation on that, if that's a, an over, you know, a system that produces regularly, which this one does, 
Right. You can feed 180 people all their protein needs from that from that amount of fish. So that's pretty cool. So we do have a couple questions here. Um, wow, you did a lot of cool. They're, yes, they're awesome. You got a great deal of, of pictures too and some good video. Um, so where can I find information on how to design and build an aquaponic system? Right here, <laughs> um, Diego. That I think that was you asking. That's what this whole idea is about. All right, well, um, by the way, I, I just did a 16-week series. You should really go back and watch on, on how to do what Jerry would be describing as a sustenance system. And, and maybe at the smaller size, it would be subsistence, so not commercial. Um, but in terms of how to take it um, commercial, um, I've done it. <laughs> um, we, we, we operated a what I think was the largest um, mixed hydroponic hybrid aquaponic system in the United States for a three-year period of time. Um, we teach about that. We're not pitching here on on this this series of revenue of these videos, but that's that's our expertise. Jerry and I have lots of other technical experts on his team, my team, our teams together. We can help you with that. Yeah. Yeah, a, rule, a rule of thumb is, that seems to be emerging from, I don't know what you, you found, Wayne, but the, that I find to find is that one acre, one farmer, $45,000 a year. That's probably what, but you can't have two farmers. You have to have one. So one person has to do it. And, and really, I mean, that, as I said, it's okay, but what you're doing at that, at that stage, whether you're growing horizontally, at, as many people do, or whether you're growing vertically and you get the one acre, it's still one acre of growing. And and uh, you could make, as I said, about one person can make forty-five thousand a year. If you can live on that, then that's good. If you can't, you got to hire somebody else and pay them not fifteen dollars an hour, which is the rate I'm calculating at, but pay them ten dollars an hour, and you make five dollars an hour. But that you know now you're starting to get to to a bad place. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So back to that question again. You're at the right place. Um, get on the Facebook page. Raise that question. We've got an amazing number of other team members that could help you with that. Um, we we're, we we know how to do the designing and building of these kinds of systems. What else? Any other questions from anybody? I'm not seeing any, and we'll try to be uh, very uh, um, good to Jerry here. It's two hours later where he's at, and also uh, to all of you. And thank you so much, Jerry. And, and again, we didn't even talk about this, but I actually do want you to come back and to do those other segments. We'll talk about the specific timing of it. Absolutely. Um, love, love that. And um, please tell everybody about this about, and ask them to come and watch the replays. Two more weeks that this is free, folks, for new people. Otherwise, they're going to start paying a monthly fee. And we think that's totally fair. There's over. 55 hours, hours of unbelievable information here now. That grows at the rate of five to six hours a week. It'll start growing even more than that. And this is good stuff. And we're about ready to come up with our first course that we will sell to outsiders through the team. You guys can all sell it. You can make money doing that. We call that affiliate income. And that's very close. And another thing, on the site now is the ebook that we wrote about small scale sustenance, sustenance, excuse me, sustenance, subsistence type of backyard farming. And we wrote an introductory ebook 
that I remember if I told you about it that you could edit if you'd like only it'll help us but also we'll acknowledge you some of you need something on your resumes if you're gonna raise funds you probably need to say something you know what I I helped write a book on this whole topic that's that's a pretty good little uh, resume builder for you so it's there on the site if you would go in and, and read the instructions I'd like it's in a word format if you edit it just put it back in um, and send it back to me with, with some different name with it so I can distinguish it from someone else's editing and what's already there. So thank you, Jerry. Thank you, audience. Thank you, helpers. All of you that were here, Stephanie, Deb, Mark, you guys are awesome. Mark, did you learn from this? Anyway, yes, I learned. Uh, that, that was an awesome presentation. And, and I have something else. I wanted Mark to come on here, Jerry. So this was set up. Would you please ask Jerry the question you want to ask him and then tell him yeah, what you're doing? Well, I, I already had an interview with him before you got to him. So, yeah, I had my own private interview. Well, I want the rest of the audience to hear this a little bit. <laughs> so just, just a little, what is it that Jerry's going to help you a little bit with? Uh, he's probably going to help me with my drumming skills. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because I'm okay, also a drummer. Let me, you, let me give the best advice you'll ever get. Buy a yes. book called Stones, right? George Lawrence Stones, Stick Handling. That it's in okay. it's in every every it's a basic book it was written in I think 1830. It talks about the, okay. the drumming rudiments. Learn those. That's the first step. Awesome. And by the way, he's playing in a band, and I'm going to send you three or four tracks that that he and his band have made, Jerry. So. And they're, you know, they're they're actually going to be on television in Bangladesh, where he's at. So he's he's got a oh, little. Wow. And I don't know if you guys caught it earlier, but Jerry talked about his practice time. Anybody remember what that was? Put it out in the chat here. If you remember what he said. He said eight hours a day. Eight hours a day. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, if you if you practice an hour a day, that's good. You'll get. But you've got to practice. Practice and playing are not the same thing. Yes, I, uh, yeah, and uh, I thank you very much for those uh, advice. And it, you don't uh, have an idea how, uh, what it means to me <laughs> because it's really amazing. Even I can talk to you. <laughs> he was looking forward to this, Jerry. He was looking anytime, forward. Anytime, man. Anytime. You got my get my email address. Just give anybody my email address. I'm glad to talk to anybody. Uh, well, hey everybody, um, thank you. I'm going to sign off. Again, another unbelievable night. And or day or middle of the morning like it is for Mark and, uh, and, and all the rest of you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jerry. I'm going to stop the recording right now. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.